Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in-depth look at today's issues. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Face Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080, 96.5 TIC-FM and Light 100.5 WRCH. Aaron Kupek with you this Sunday morning, and we are pleased to be joined by Ken Miso-Gland. He is Bureau Chief for External Affairs at the Connecticut Department of Children and Families, the state's child welfare agency. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning, Aaron. How are you? I am well, and yourself? Great, great. Well, I always appreciate the opportunity to come and, and speak about the department and 2019 highlights and some of the great work that's happening. DCF got some good news earlier this month regarding the Juan F. Consent Decree, which dates back almost 30 years. This is something the agency has been working very hard to get out from underneath, and you got word that you achieved a a critical benchmark. Tell us about that. We did. So we were very, very happy when uh, Court Monitor Ray Mancuso pre-certified Uh, our outcome measure related to caseload standards. So to put that into a context, when when I started with the agency, I had about 50 cases, and the commissioner jokes that she had about 56 uh, decades ago when when she was a worker. And what, what we know is that in order to do this critical work with Connecticut's most vulnerable and oppressed children, our caseloads need to be manageable so we can provide quicker safety assessments, more comprehensive risk assessments, and overall provide a provision of services to families in a way to meet their needs by today's standards, given the complexities that we see. So due to the great support of Governor Lamont, the Office of Policy and Management, and the Connecticut Legislature, over the past really 18 months, we have been in a, in a process of predictive hiring where we have had the ability to hire um, social work staff, direct caseload carrying social work staff in ways that we have never really seen before, which has allowed the overall caseloads across the state to drop to the level that we have been achieving or looking towards under our consent decree. What sort of work do these frontline personnel do? So the people that we're talking about that are caseload carrying staff are our investigators who, first of all, respond to the initial reports of child abuse and neglect that are called into our child abuse and neglect care line. They're also the staff that handle cases on an ongoing basis whereby we've already confirmed either an act of abuse or neglect has occurred or we are concerned about a number of risk factors that we've seen in the family and believe that case should remain open with the department for ongoing work, up to and including perhaps children being placed into foster care while we're working hard to have them reunified, up to and including children being adopted. So these caseload-carrying staff, whereby in years past may have had 20 or 30 cases, we now have an average of about 12 cases per social worker across the state. Certainly today, 
We have much higher expectations of the work that they are going to perform. But we believe now we have the infrastructure as far as our social work staffing to do quality, comprehensive work across the state that is going to lead to much better outcomes for children and families. And I'm guessing when it comes to finding those social workers, it's not just a matter of adding positions. It's, in many cases, keeping the people you have. I'm guessing there's a high turnover rate in this sort of occupation. So uh, we know across the country, Child Protective Services work is some of the most grueling, high-risk work that is performed in and out of state government. So across the nation, the turnover rate for child protective services workers actually is quite high. Connecticut has been in a, in a very fortunate position where our turnover rate um, has not exceeded the national standard. In fact, for years, it has been much lower than the national standard, in part due to, we think, a lot of factors. We think our salary structure, our benefit structure, the training that we offer, and quite honestly, our caseload standards, even though they haven't been where we've wanted them, are still so much better than other state agencies um, across the across the country. So we do have turnover, but in order to continue to maintain staffing at the ratio that we want, we are constantly advertising to hire. We are constantly interviewing new individuals for potential positions. So we have a bank of individuals waiting that when we know we are going to have a vacancy, we can hire somebody to start the day that vacancy will come into play. Whereby in years past, under previous administrations, we had to wait until that social worker was actually out of that position, then request a refill, then go hire somebody. And you can imagine the gap between somebody leaving and somebody actually coming in. So when we say that we had a great week when our caseload standards were pre-certified, the backstory there is a long history of support and collaboration and organization by a number of people over a long period of time to get here. Backing up a bit, tell us about the genesis of the Juan F case. This is something that dates back to 1989, really, with the, the filing of a lawsuit. Correct. Juan F was, is the name of the federal lawsuit that was filed against the state of Connecticut Department of Children and Families, whereby um, years ago, uh, we're going back to the 80s, um, it was believed that children in the state were not being provided adequate protection and supports. And when you look back at what the agency had then and did not have then, clearly children and families were going without a number of core components of being protected. And through um, an agency, a nonprofit agency, a children's rights agency, the department was, was the state was sued. Uh, the department eventually agreed to a consent degree and a set of standards that we would adhere to. It's not as easy as I describe it. It's We're now in our 30th, if not 31st year um, of the consent decree, if I, if I understand the, the timing of it correctly. So there's a number of outcome measures we need to meet. At one point, it was at 22. Uh, we're now down to a full four that we need to meet. So we arrived at a consent decree because of a lack of services and support and funding. 
think we have seen over the decades the manner in which the Connecticut legislature has now funded the department, the importance they place in the department regarding the overall government budget package. And we look to exit the consent decree, not simply so we can say we're out, but because that would be a reflection that we are meeting the needs of Connecticut's children who come to our attention. What are those four remaining benchmarks you're still working on? So in order in which we believe that we're going to be close to having them met, first of all, is our investigations practice. Are we providing quality, thorough investigations in a timely manner? And right now that measure is actually under uh, review by our, by our court monitor. The second component concurrently to that is our in-home visitation standard. So to explain that just for a touch, uh, the expectation is that we, when we have a family intact that are being provided services by the department, we are to see all household members every two weeks. Not that easy given people's schedules, families, some families may not engage with us, some youth may be harder to locate than others. But that's a standard that we know when met puts us in a better position to protect children and families because they are more vulnerable. The third and fourth measures are really joined. It's do are we writing comprehensive, thorough case plans according to this, the individual unique needs of the families? And then in those plans are the needs of the children we are serving actually met? So we've pre-certified caseload standards. We now are working towards certification, which will lead us ultimately to an exit of the consent decree if we can meet and sustain investigations, in-home visitation, case plans, and needs met. Is there any timeline for that? We have a schedule by which internally we believe we should obtain compliance with those measures. But it's, it's an, actually an interesting question and one that I anticipated when we were coming in here today. What we want the public to know is that we are not, quote unquote, teaching to the test. Under Commissioner Durantis and the executive team that she has put together, we are reinforcing solid casework practices across the state and building upon the great work we've done over our previous administration. And we believe with the work that we are promoting and the supervisory standards and the partnership that we have with our community providers, some of which we fund, some of which we don't, and the work we do with our sister state agencies, all of our work will be improved to protect children and that will lead to greater outcomes that will also satisfy our one-off consent decree. But we're not looking at this to say, we need to do X, Y, and Z for the consent decree. We're saying we wanna make sure that we are the best child protective services agency we can be and hold and establish values and policies and procedures that will lead to greater service provision across all the spectrums that we're responsible for, including meeting those outcome measures. To make that happen, does the agency have the need, the resources it needs in place? Do you still need additional funding from the legislature? Do you still need additional services from other agencies? Mm-hmm. So we, we are going to have our budget hearing uh, within the next couple of weeks at the legislature. And, and we, again, wanted to uh, 
publicly give thanks to Governor Lamont, the Office of Policy and Management, and our legislature for the way our department and the manner in which our department was funded last year. And we believe this year's budget is in a line with what we need, both staffing-wise and services, to meet the needs of the children and families that are coming our way. I've been very blessed to be with the department for 30 years. Aaron, I don't think there's ever a year where I have ever said, oh, we're good, right? There's always going to be an additional need that pops up. Sure, we could also argue, well, we need a little bit more here or a little bit more there. But we also understand in the department that we are one state agency that's part of the governor's overall budget. And we are a team player with our other sister state agencies and recognize that there is only so much funding, in fact, to go around. We also are practicing and and talking a lot about fiscal responsibility at the department and mutual accountability with our providers. We need to make sure that with our government dollars that we have, we are using them, spending them wisely in an efficient manner. You are listening to Face Connecticut. We are talking to Ken Mysogland. He is Bureau Chief for External Affairs with the Connecticut Department of Children and Families. You mentioned the number of calls you get each year, over 100,000 in 2019, including 60,000 new reports of child abuse and neglect. And I'm guessing maybe it's because of what makes the news or what people see on TV, but I think the... The general consensus might be, oh, if someone's calling DCF, kids are being taken away. But that's what you try not to do, correct? You, you, you said that very, very well. We, we may need you to, to work with the department there, Aaron. Um, you know, 100,000 phone calls a year is, is a significant amount given such a small state that Connecticut is. While in the same sense as well, we should feel very proud as a state to know that the concerns for children and their families is so prevalent that that many calls and that many new reports are in fact generated. We under Commissioner Durantis have really spoken a lot about our public value. What is the public value of the Department of Children and Families? And we want to always make sure that we continue to emphasize that we are an agency that safely provides services to children so they can remain at home with their families. We're not an agency that we want people to have the perception of that if I'm going to call them, I'm worried kids are going to be taken. We know that those concerns may be there, but we want you to think of us as that place to go when you have identified a child or a family in need. When we look at our statistics, 91.5% of the time that we knock on a door, children stay safely at home with their parents and caregivers. And if children have to be removed due to unsafe conditions, almost half of the time they are placed with relatives to lessen the trauma on them. And of all of our children that have to be removed, approximately 60% of them actually wind up going home and are reunified with parents or caregivers that are stronger and have rehabilitated and have the proper services so they can safely parent. And that's the essence of what our our staff do every day is is strengthen families and work with our partners in the communities to, whenever possible, ensure safe children can safely remain at home. A good deal of social service work in Connecticut is done by private nonprofits. How closely does DCF work with the private nonprofit community? Sure. 
So we consider our private nonprofits and individuals that we provide funding to and grassroots agencies and sister state agencies and police and medical providers are partners. We like to say that the Department of Children and Families is the Child Protective Services Agency, but we are not the Child Protective Services System. And it's the nonprofits and those other groups that we listed that partner with us to keep children safe. So the department provides millions of dollars each year to fund community-based services uh, for uh, mental health treatment, substance use treatment, parenting, uh, uh, for services related to uh, interpersonal uh, violence, all kinds of things on the array of programs and services that you can imagine. The department funds, and we work with our private provider community to um, partner with us for those families and children that we bring to their attention. What also is not fully understood about the department is we're the lead children's mental health agency across the state. So we provide millions of dollars of funding to child guidance agencies, uh, EMPS, which is Emergency Mobile Psychiatric Services, and others for children's behavioral health services. Many of those families, thousands, never come to the department's attention, but yet they are still accessing services that are funded by the department in their local communities. Tell us about your partnership with Beacon Health. So in the next couple months, um, the department is going to uh, begin a new program for children's behavioral health, whereby if you are trying to access services for your child, you can call a new program under Beacon Health instead of having to call the Department of Children and Families, the agency that is related to child abuse and neglect. Why did we want this? Well, in last legislative session, we advocated for some additional funding and it was given to us so we can shift some of the work that we do with some of the most high-end or specialized needs youth to Beacon so a non-DCF state government agency can work with their families instead of having those families come to the department's attention. Again, it's a little separation of coming to us because you're abusing or neglecting your child versus coming to us because you have a behavioral health need. Let's let the behavioral health need be contracted out to a private organization. We think that's better overall for families and children. Because there is sometimes a stigma there when you say I'm calling DCF. We believe this will lead to greater access for families who have a concern that their child needs something more than what they can provide them because it takes away the stigma of I'm calling DCF and now I'm going to call a private provider. And we think overall that's gonna be much better for children and families. Not that the way the current system is designed is wrong, but again, this is also about enhancing the work that we do and listening to those families and children who we provide services to. And this is one of the issues that they said is when we wanna provide, when we wanna access services, we'd rather not come to you, we'd rather go to another entity. So Beacon Health is a part of state government. It's not a, a nonprofit. Um, Beacon Health is is going is our administrative services organization that oversees a number of programs for Connecticut's children. They are not a state agency. Okay, so, yeah, so that we have partnered with over the years on a number of um, pieces of our work that they oversee and and manage. Tell us about DCF's work when it comes to recruiting foster parents. Always a, a hot issue 
with the department. Um, always want to reiterate to the viewers that we fundamentally, fundamentally believe that if children cannot remain in their own home safely, we look to their family members and kin as the first placement option. Because they know them. They know them. It lessens the trauma. They can stay right within people that they are familiar with who know their needs and the and the languages and the nuances that all of our families have that an outsider would have a hard time truly understanding. So 45% of our youth are placed with kin, but we also are actively recruiting for non-related foster parents because we know that there are children who do not have a resource who's a family member and still need placement. So what the department did over the past year is we established a, a, a new model of licensing called Weekend for a Lifetime, whereby we have reduced the time to licensure by 50%. So what happens now is when you call us and express an interest in being a foster and adoptive parent, we will come out, we'll conduct an interview, we will have initial background checks done, and then instead of having you go through a one-day-a-week training for, let's say, 12 weeks, we will hold you in a group and we will have you come over a weekend to have that 12-week training condensed into a weekend event where you are trained, you are with other foster and adoptive parents, and at the end of that weekend, the only thing remaining for you to become licensed is a fully completed home study. So we've condensed the training into a weekend. We have better supports for our foster and adoptive parents as a result of that, and it's cut the time to licensure in half. So we are very excited about that new program. I know there are all-stars within the, the foster care community, but you're always looking for, for new foster homes. We will always say that we are looking for people who love kids. That's the bottom line. Our foster parents love kids. And if you're interested in becoming a foster parent or even have a question, our website is www.ctfosteradopt.com or you can call 1-888-KID-HERO, 1-888-K-I-D-H-E-R-O and you can speak to a staff member about your interest in becoming a foster and adoptive parent. Maybe, Aaron, if I could also add this, for our listeners who are aware that somebody that they know perhaps is in state custody, if you are interested in providing care for that specific child, contact your local DCF office, and they can assist you on where um, you can go to express interest in that child. If you're not sure where to call, you can contact our office at 1-860-550-6301 and speak to one of the staff in our community relations department. Ken, in our final moments, tell us one other thing about DCF that the public may not know but should. I Again, I think that we have talked about the perception of the department being the state agency that you know just simply places children. And what we want the public to know is that we want to be valued. We want the public to seek us when a child is in need and know that we are gonna have staff that are compassionate and kind to thoroughly assess the family in front of us and to develop with that family a set of plans that we, will be we believe and the family believes that in fact will help them. 
And at the end of the day, when we move away and walk away from a family, we are leaving that family stronger and those children healthier and better protected than when we initially knocked on the door. And if we've done that, we've done our job. He is Ken Mysogland, Bureau Chief for External Affairs at the Connecticut Department of Children and Families. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you very much. Our pleasure. Thanks for listening to Face Connecticut. I'm Aaron Kupek. Enjoy the balance of your weekend. Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com.